I'm Divya Shekhar and this is From the Bookshelves of Forbes India. In 2019, I wrote an article for Forbes India that was headlined, The Women Who Talk to Trees. It was about two teachers of sustainability at the Azim Premji University in Bengaluru who had written a book called Cities and Canopies. They had combined scientific rigor with historic references, anecdotes and nostalgia to highlight the significance of trees in urban life. Today, four years later, I'm very happy to welcome Harini Nagendra and Seema Mundoli as guests on this episode. Their latest book, called Shades of Blue, Connecting the Dots in India's Cities, takes a panoramic view of water bodies in India and the urgent need to address their ecological threats. I speak with them about how we need to look at water beyond its utilitarian identity, whether we need to put a price on water, and how we can rekindle our relationship with water and understand our responsibility towards conserving it. Harini and Seema, thank you so much for uh, joining me in this conversation. It's lovely to be speaking with you today. Thanks, Dindya. It's great to be speaking to you again. Thanks, Dindya. Great to be here. So after Cities and Canopies, you've now turned the focus to water. And in this book, like the previous one, you've also, you've combined your scientific rigor, your research, along with stories and voices of people, anecdotes, urban legends, etc. So uh, why did you want to take this up for your second book? Um, Seema, do you want to start? And then Harini, maybe you can add to that. Water is now such a critical area of interest not just for from a scientific point of view but in everyday lives we have so many concerns about water whether it's scarcity or our homes are getting flooded or uh, uh, like we mentioned in the book on microbial resistance uh, etc so uh, that was one of the reasons and uh, we felt that yes it would be nice to uh, work on water uh, on in a more uh, in a manner that would be write about it in a manner that would be easy for a wider audience to relate to the science and the uh, history and all of those together. Yeah, and also, I mean, one of the things we've been seeing in so many years of trying to communicate uh, on the environment and sustainability to people is that the science is of course very important but just stopping at science does not lead to transformation otherwise you know so many ipcc reports later the world would have tackled climate change right what is very important is i think we have a lot a lot of people who are interested in these uh, issues but you can uh, turn them off by the science as much as you can pull them in with the science and we want to pull them in so storytelling becomes really important and storytelling needs to touch the imagination touch creativity touch emotions touch hearts and so that's also part of the same reason we've actually gone a little further, I think, than the even mm-hmm. canopies with much more of the stories woven, interwoven closely into the sets. You know, and it's it's some of these stories are really, really beautiful, and we'll 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 get to that part a little later. Uh, to begin with, uh, sort of, can we talk more about uh, water footprint, which finds a mention early on in the book as well. So I, I feel like most climate related conversations are focused largely on coal and carbon. Uh, sometimes I feel that water is not given its due in climate change converse- or climate conversations because maybe people think it's ubiquitous which is why it's 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 like just there they don't feel the need to be more intentional about it uh sort of can you ad- address that sure see if and you're absolutely right if you think of issues of climate change biodiversity air pollution water are very critical to our daily lives and they get completely mixed up messed out of the uh, missed out of this entire conversation 
and that is something we are really trying to address you know the misnomer of climate change being global warming it's all about the 1.5 c it's not just that one and a half degree centigrade that's going to cause the difference it's going to create all kinds of disruptions in our life and what is the biggest symbol of that because you can live with heat strokes you can live with uh, tornadoes and hurricanes of course during the extreme events you need to worry but you can't live with the scarcity of water on a daily basis so water footprints become very important how much water do we consume who consumes water and one of the things we wanted to get at in the book is this whole issue of water scarcity is so complex yes we're in a floating in water we're in a planet where all land mass is floating in water most of that is unusable to us because it's salty what we have of fresh water is either polluted or it's unavailable to us because there's too much at one time or it's there but it's in the wrong time of the year or it's there but it's going to the wealthy and not the poor or it's there because you know the quality is is, is so bad that it's undrinkable or unusable so there's a lot of components to this and when you say water scarcity i think we wanted people to appreciate how much justice and equity plays in and therefore you know politics and also and governance and all of these other things so that's one of the reasons we really wanted to focus right early in the book on this whole issue of water scarcity as i was reading the book one thing that i kept uh, sort of that kept coming to my mind uh, is this point uh, harini that you and i have discussed uh, in the past mostly sort of when i was in bangalore and I used to used to write stories on the environment and sort of uh, citizen activism and movements around it uh, and uh, i remember you used to say that one big problem is that many decision makers say even within government for example different departments work in isolation which is sort of the root cause of so many problems um that also i found to be like a common thread uh, across uh, the book so uh, can you uh, tell us in a little more detail about how that applies to water security as well so if you look at river interlinking i think the, that was would be one classic example for us we have an entire chapter on that when we think of the fact i mean river interlinking the idea seems very obvious and useful at at the first level right you, what you're saying is there's too much water in one place because rivers are flooding there's another problem in another part of india because rivers are running dry and just interlink the rivers all problems will be sorted but even i mean ignore the ecological and the environmental dimensions for a moment which are really complex and there are reasons why river leaking would create ecological problems or environmental problems but leave that aside as a governance issue in a city like bangalore we know very well that you can't rejuvenate lakes easily because the bwssp which is the sewerage department doesn't talk to the revenue department doesn't talk to the pollution control department doesn't talk to the municipality you know uh, so all of these uh, or the metro line comes and cuts through road is widened and disrupts half of the lake or you know, it's such a small thing in one city one lake you're not able to bring all the stakeholders together because there's absolutely no incentive for them to come together and talk now you're talking about different states coordinating how to share water i mean we've seen with kaveri disputes for instance how difficult it is for states to come to a common agreement how are you going to get these states these departments all the cities all the rural areas all the villages the taluks the you know all of these places to come together and coordinate something like water sharing so you're right it's a common theme that runs through the book whether it's in specific cities like udaipur and bangalore or it's in themes like river interlinking it's there you know continuously because this governance problem is a is a challenge for a for a for a, a country like india which is so populous and has you know this british bureaucracy inheritance of all of these complicated departments that sort of brings me to um, another uh, point 
uh, in the book wherein you uh, you speak about how the british did not sort of really understand the connections between say river canals and tanks and tanks were often left dry they did not also understand say the local socio cultural relationships that people have had with water um, they started seeing um, river fronts as recreational spots uh, so all in all uh, how did the british impact india's traditional water systems and what is the result of that do we also see that today so a lot of you are right in saying that yes uh, the british view of water was very uh, in a sense instrumental you know we need water for uh, say um, a, a city is growing so we need water to fulfill the needs of the population and if you look at uh, cities they were spoken of like chennai and all the focus of providing water was also on the white where the white population lived so uh, and it was all about cleanliness sanitation health those were the main concerns of the british things like uh, traditional activities whether it is grazing uh, washing the cattle um, or washing clothes in water was not something that they saw which water bodies traditionally people used in a village they didn't recognize those uses unfortunately what has happened and one way of uh, seeing it is that the british wrote about these things they said they wanted for example the yamuna they were thinking of uh, they wanted the yamuna to be clean without any dirt or dobi guard these ideas seem to have the written idea seemed to have persisted much more than what the actual reality of the use of water was which was never maybe recorded in that sense and uh, uh, and it's it's so pervasive and so strong that even today we are talking about the same kind of uh, activities when it comes to water we don't recognize the communal community uses of water that was there and because they didn't prioritize it the uh, the the structures that for example the lakes in bangalore the concept of the nirganti the toti the people and the community how they took care of it kind of disintegrated water became for a certain kinds of uses some kinds of uses were dirty and that became the major uh, way of looking at water and that persists even today even if we look at the lakes in bangalore uh, uh, seeing a grazer taking a cow to a lake is still seen by most people around the lake as oh why are they here it's not clean there's cow there's dung and all those things but the relationship that the people have had with that lake is is far deeper than just as a source of uh, water and somehow in the way history has happened we have failed to capture those nuances of use we have just focused on what is recorded written there's so much uh, there's research that is done with harni and uh, uh, some of the areas have worked on which talks about the the intense social cultural relations that they have that is not recorded anyway so we also don't recognize we always prioritize the written uh, word even now today so uh, that is one of the things that has weakened the weakened the structures of governments they weakened the multi use nature of water into like a single use water is for drinking water is for keeping the house clean and that's about it when you all started putting this together what is the kind of what is the approach that you all used in writing the book like how do you sort of amalgamate all this together what should the flow be like and out of that what did what was the takeaway that you wanted the reader to have i guess how we written it in the sense is there are four five layers of it of course there is our individual experience of our childhood or places we've been to and seen around water like i remember maybe my first trip in in, in a parakal in hampi 
So those memories would come back. The second, of course, there's the shared research that we have been doing on water in Bangalore and other, uh, like Harni mentioned, in Calcutta. So that's another layer to it. Then there is the curiosity, you know, there's this fun element to it, which is what the cryptozoology, the booth preth, uh, that that we because while they may be for many maybe pseudoscience, they're very much a part of what makes people interested in things. I mean, as a kid, we have all played in water and thought of, oh, water for monster, uh, uh, there is a water monster under it. And finally, the science, of course, which we can't, uh, it, it's necessary to have that in any informed kind of, even if it is for a public, uh, uh, widely read, uh, we're looking at a wide audience, it's necessary to bring that uh, science and the rigor of it. So these are the, I think we added layer and layer and layer, and depending upon which we were able to kind of spread it through the uh, through the book. And essentially our attitude, Divya, is that if we are having fun reading the uh, and researching the book, hopefully readers will have fun in reading you know, what, what we've produced. The particularly chilling chapter about superbugs. Um, so India is one of the largest manufacturers of antibiotics and as a country we also rank high in consumption of those antibiotics. So uh, like you've written in the book a lot of pharma companies are accused of dumping effluents directly uh, into their nearby water bodies without uh, adequate treatment. Um, so what you have mentioned uh, solutions in the book as well but can you tell our listeners what needs to be done uh, to sort of solve for this. Also on the antibiotic stuff, I mean, there's the other thing is, uh, as you were also saying, Divya, and we write about, uh, we pop so many pills in India. I mean, we use so much, for instance, our, uh, one of the things that shocked us, even though we knew that it was bad, was how much we, we use in, uh, uh, antibiotics, for instance, to rear our chicken, to rear fish, all of these things, you know, things that many people consume daily. And there's so much antibiotic uh, that goes into your body, hormones that go into your body without you realizing it. And then when they go into water streams, untreated as effluents, it becomes a real problem. Most other countries regulate their antibiotic use. We have absolutely no government regulation. So you have to have that regulatory aspect also along with this, with this change of, uh, you know, looking at it as a commons. And for that, we need consumer awareness because governments will not do this regulatory enforcement unless consumers demand it. So I think that's also part of what we're trying to do is trying to get people to understand how it can be dangerous to each one of us. I mean, one of the scary things for us was realizing that, let's say if you're a, a pharma company uh, dumping water into a stream in one corner of Hyderabad, but that stream is where dhobis wash clothes and take them across the city. You might be in a completely different part of the city wearing a shirt impregnated with those antibiotics. You have a problem, you land up in the ICU and uh, you know you get treated with these drugs and you have a super resistant bug in your body. How could you even trace it back to the fact that your dhobi washed it somewhere? I mean, yeah. we can't get away from this. So we really have to be very aware as consumers. On the subject of, say, creating awareness among people, uh, I have seen this myself, uh, you know, limited to Bangalore when I was in Bangalore and you also write about how uh, a lot of citizen activism and initiatives by citizens has has shaped uh, Bangalore and uh, you know people's understanding of uh, how to sort of not only live with water but there are also been uh, say trees uh, you know so, you know saving trees not uh, movements to sort of cut down trees rejuvenate lakes etc um, so do you see in uh, can you 
talk about these instances of not just bangalore but of people around the country becoming more aware and intentional of water its importance and how it's used and how that can perhaps set the tone for you know how we can uh, sort of reshape our relationship with water so the water warriors if you uh, if we look at the kind of work they have been doing or how they arrived at doing the work um if they they could have stopped at any point of time and said this is just too much uh, i i can't do it and then and the water warriors are not just from bangalore they're from pune they're from cities across uh, india so it's just how they have been persistent uh, and how they have come up with innovative ways of engaging uh, with uh, uh, in their own uh, in their own way like one person is looking at sending postcards to the uh, supreme court maybe it won't make any difference but it makes everybody feel involved as you know i'm doing something or it could be somebody like uh, from calcutta who's working with children to look at the landscape of the wetlands and say this is my home how how would i treat it uh, how do i want it to be how do i uh, prevent pollution uh, working with children or working with fishermen as the case in pune is so uh, it's i for, it's these smaller activities that we, these water warriors are doing that it is to me uh, gives a lot of uh, you know hope in what we can do in places like bangalore definitely we've seen or chennai or coimbatore or delhi bombay that groups of activists or groups of community uh, water warriors and tree warriors gain strength from each other also you know let's say you've restored a lake you've passed a group to restore a lake in bangalore you get skills along the way which is might be something as simple as how do you talk to the government officers and what are their phone numbers and addresses all the way to where do you get your maps from to whom do you consult for ecological queries and you train the next group who trains the next group so this exchange of information and uh, you know it really shortcuts the learning curve for many of these people so that i think at a next level the synergy from group to group is also very nice for us to see right and uh, if uh... we need to reiterate the importance of water among people in a more quote unquote mainstream way would putting a price on water help like what what do you think about that i don't know we have may have debut it's a interesting question personally i can tell you what i would think i think it's very useful to have a slab of the kind we used to have for telephone calls near few decades ago something that says that the first level of water should be cheap in fact free because for most people who can't afford water you don't want to price water what you want to price is the unnecessary consumption by many of us who are wealthier and clearly there's a there's a very clear relationship between wealth and over consumption of water and so often there is enough water to go around if you price it correctly so i think we need to have a slab system which is what many of our cities used to have but make that slab even more and more you know so you can really start paying for water the more you consume it beyond a certain per capita use so that to me would be a very important way of doing it and this whole tanker the ease with which apartments buy tankers there has to be some without doing any rainwater harvesting yeah that is also very concerning as it in in the area where we are in there is no piped water supply a lot of the water is through tankers and it's an endless supply of uh, tankers it's coming from somewhere somebody is being deprived to uh, give us some resources being uh, so how do you uh, when we are all paying uh, we are paying for that but i feel that we are not really uh, recognizing how much it is costing overall the environment 
uh, when we are living with that tanker. So we are not paying the full environment. We are not cost. paying the full cost of it. The, I, I remember this tanker outside our apartment is a daily side, I think twice a day. And I can see the kids who are playing. When we were kids, we had to fill water. Uh, it would come for two hours in the morning. We stayed in a quarter. So you have to fill water for two hours in the morning. And so. But I'm sure these kids probably think that's how water comes. They haven't even seen a pump. Right? It's just this tanker coming every day, morning and evening to fill. So what is that? Again, you're distancing the child from the water. If it rains, the child is not supposed to go and play in the water. Water is coming from a tanker. What kind of imagery is a child supposed to get? What yeah. hurts me every time if I get to the Bangalore airport is these bottles of Evian. The climate footprint, the plastic footprint, the fact that you're getting this water all of the way from the French Alps or wherever. And you can't just get a, a glass of clean drinking yeah. water, you know, if you're with your food. It's it's awful. I mean, when you think of this, this really perverted relationship you've developed with water is, I think, at the root of many of our problems of uh, water scarcity today. And uh, what what are the immediate sort of steps that people can take at any stage that they are okay as individuals at the policy level, etc., to uh, sort of start improving our relationship with water, protecting water, and sort of using water with the kind of uh, you know you know with without wastage or in the in the kind of way that it needs to be used while protecting it and cherishing it. That's a very uh, tough one to answer, actually. Very big question, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a tough. Uh, um, I don't know. I, I think for different people, it's different reasons. And we just have to find out what it is, what is the reason for each of them. Uh, it may be scarcity that maybe for the fear of scarcity that may make one person uh, uh, be more conscious about water usage. For others, it may be okay, pollution. Uh, why are so many people concerned about the Ganga, the Yamuna? They are sacred rivers. Why is so much money being put into it because of this vision of a sacred river? Then can we leverage uh, that? Can we leverage guilt? I mean, uh, the idea that we are using much more than what we, we should. Uh, I don't know. It's it's not an easy. I wish we knew an answer to that, but it's really tough. I really have no awareness. Definitely, emotion to connect to water at different times, and um, uh, yeah, and maybe a little bit of valuation, economics, everything, a bit of everything, whatever works. Awareness, imagination, economics, um, and uh, sacred and spiritual. I think those would be the big, big ones. Uh, for our, I mean, so, so water really, I think the one thing we agreed on at the end, it is really a magical molecule, you know, the chemistry is magic, the physics, the evolution, whether it came from outer space or not. And you think of all of that, you think that life evolved on earth because of water. And then you look at the way and you think of all the, you know, the goddesses that we worship, which are water related. The, the fact that it's such a part of all major religions. And then you think of the fact that it's it's fine for us to say this is a sacred lake or a sacred river, at the same time uh, pollute it, at the same time waste it. You know, and the, this whole, uh, we've lost our relationship as Seema was saying. So I think the first thing is to, to reconnect that relationship. So if, if you start thinking about where our water comes from, is it from the ground? Is it from a distant river? Uh, is it from a bottle of Evian? Uh, what do we think of as pure water? What do we think of as, you know, who, who are the people around us that are drinking water? How much water do they have? What are the water bodies next to us and what do they look like? 
And if you go into them, can you actually touch the water? Can you see what else drinks the water? I think that's the journey of exploration. If you can start the journey of exploration, that what we found is for us, even when we started our research on water, one question led to an exploration of uh, journey of exploration. That journey led to more questions. That exploration then led to more connections. And the more connections you have lead to more questions. So you really go on this pathway of, I think, lifelong learning about water. And that's also what we hope some of, some people at least will start off with this book. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Thanks so listeners, that's a lot of food for thought, especially when Harini said that our perverted relationship with water today is responsible for the scarcity uh, that we see around us. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm Divya Shekhar. See you next time. <laughs>